Feeling like an outsider. I'll tell one story. I had a few examples, uh, but we went to uh, Jerusalem. And you know when you go to another country, you go to another place, the language is different, the customs are different, the culture is different, and uh, there's always kind of a feeling like an outsider. And you, you're kind of on your best behavior. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to be that person who comes in and, you know, offends people. You're trying to be careful. You're trying to be friendly. And uh, I do, you know, it was a pretty smooth trip. At the end of the trip, we were in Jerusalem itself, and uh, we were in this area that was just packed with people uh, speaking Arabic. And I, and it just, I felt like such a foreigner in that moment, just stood out visibly with our group of 12 American tourists. And uh, I felt a little... Like, just a little bit like, you know, anything could happen here. I had a little bit of a, uh, what's that called, cultural, culture shock, even though I'd been there already for, you know, several days. And I felt like an outsider, and different, and visibly different. And um, we got through that. I was relieved. And uh, then I'm, you know, again, surrounded by the people I know and love, and then I'm an insider again. We're going to talk about that. Uh, maybe Natalie mentioned it. Maybe feel like an outsider here in this gathering. Um, now, ideally, and this sounds like heaven because this is what heaven's going to be like. Uh, people ideally would feel wherever they go, they would feel welcomed, and they would uh, feel safe, and they would feel like uh, I can trust these people, and people can trust me, and and I wouldn't have to put on. Uh, you know, any kind of performance. I could just be myself. That freedom that you have when you're with family, maybe. You know, and you just know you're loved, you're, you're comfortable, and it's just, you can relax and enjoy others. Others enjoy you. Um, it would be great to experience that wherever we go. And that's actually what God is doing. That's the project that God is working on. He's bringing people into his family, this place, the kingdom of God, where people are secure in his love. And that frees them to be who they are and to stop focusing on themselves and start looking out to others and welcoming people warmly, seeing others. Uh, that's where God is bringing us. And that project started with God himself this is the wild thing. God, the maker of all things. This is his world. We are his people. It started off with God himself coming into a world that was actually hostile to him. We read it in the beginning of John. We've been going through John, the gospel, uh, and it goes like this. In the beginning, in the very beginning, was the word. And the word was with God, eternally Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Eternally, Father, the Word, the Son, Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him, through the Word, Father speaks the Word, and things become. Through Him, all things were made. Through Him, you were made. I was made. Everything was made. And you'd think that... Because we were made by God, when God came to us into his world, we would warmly welcome him. But that was not how it played out. John 1 verse 10. He was in the world. 
And though the world was made through him, through Jesus, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. Did not know him. A lot of the world didn't even care. A lot of the world was too busy doing its own thing to welcome the king into his world. We missed it. Many, of, many people missed it. He, the word of God in the flesh, Jesus came to that which was his own, to his very own people, the people who should have been ready and welcoming him. But his own, large portion of the, his own, did not receive him. It's wild. Yet, here it is, yet, verse 12, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, who heard his words and believed, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Not born of flesh, but born of the Spirit. Born again, we looked at that last Sunday. Born into his family, adopted in. God, the maker, your maker, knows what it's like to be an outsider. He was treated as an outsider. He was expelled. He was banished. His own people handed him over to the Romans to be executed outside the city, outside his city. Jesus knows what it's like to be an outsider. Our great and merciful high priest is merciful because he has experienced it himself. And now, that same God is reaching out to everyone who is outside his kingdom, outside his family, and calling us in, calling us to be insiders, inside the eternal fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that, that calling in by God is on full display in an interaction that he had with a Samaritan woman. It's in John 4. Let's go there. John 4. He, Jesus, left Judea, which is down south. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where he had uh, Nicodemus came to him at night and talked to him. That was last week. Um, he left Judea, departed again for Galilee, up north, up toward Nazareth, uh, and Capernaum and so forth, kind of his home base. And he had to pass through Samaria. So Samaria laid in between. A lot of Jews would bypass it, uh, and I'll tell you why in a, in a moment. But uh, he went through it. And he came to a town of Samaria, within Samaria, called Sychar, near the field that Jacob, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had given to his son Joseph, one of the 12 tribe guys. Jacob's well was there. So this is a famous place, all right? So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, the eternal word of God is fully divine, and he took on human flesh, and even he got weary. Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about noon, the heat of the day. And a woman from Samaria came, came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy some food. So Jesus is initiating relationship, connection with this 
Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds this little note for us. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. No dealings. Well, why not? What's going on here? Let me, let me get a little background here. What are these social barriers that the woman is pointing out and conscious of, and where'd they come from? So we actually have a, a picture of her, um, which is amazing, right? You can kind of see it. Uh, this is actually from The Chosen. It's a series that uh, they're doing on the Gospels. Really well done. And this scene with the Samaritan woman is really well done. So we have the Samaritan woman. First of all, the first barrier is that she is a woman. And in that time and culture and place, uh, many devout Jewish men would never be seen alone with a woman. Just to prevent any kind of, alone with a woman would be to prevent any kind of gossip, any kind of, uh, even the whiff of uh, misbehavior. It was a social risk. There's some cultures today that are very much like this as well. It was a social risk, risk of um, being accused of acting improperly. All right, so there was this gender barrier. And if they were alone, they would not likely enter into any kind of conversation. They'd just sit separately. All right, she's a woman. And then let's add this additional social barrier. This one's a bigger one, that she is a Samaritan. And Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, why not? A little backstory. Now, uh, quiz time. We do have the kids with us. So if you are fourth grade through 12th grade and you don't know the answer to this because you're on PowerPoint, then you have an opportunity to win $5 today. We're going to make it a little interesting. All right. I know. Here we go. All right. First question, $5. Uh, no help from adults. All right. $5. Who was the first king of Israel? Kids, kids. Anybody? Raise your hand. Who is the very first king of Israel? Oh, yes. I'll go with Arya. Yeah. You thought you had it. I know. It's intense. It's exciting. All right. Sophia, do you have it? Okay. Maya, I saw a hand back there. Going once. Oh, we got, uh, who else do we have? Matthew. Oh, so close. One more. Max. So, uh, a little bit almost close. One last one. All right. We're going to go with uh, uh, Xavier. All right. Sorry, it's off the board now. Very first king. Anybody else? Adults, you're welcome to this one. Saul, yes, okay. I know it's a little tricky because Saul, wait, why don't we know so much about Saul? Well, he turned kind of bad and he was gone quickly. All right, so Saul was the first king of Israel. Second one was David and then his son Solomon. And Solomon started off great, man. He was a young guy, he was a young king, and he asked God for wisdom. And uh, man, God gave it to him and he was blessed. He was an effective king, faithful to God. But then because of his success, he started to stray. He started to get a little lazy. Got his eyes off of God, who made him great, and started to look to other things. He started to marry lots of women and, and multiply his horses and his stables and his, you know, his cars and stuff. So uh, he got, and then he started to become like those 
uh, other nations, people from those other nations. He started to worship the gods and goddesses of his other wives, and he strayed. And God said, hey, uh, the punishment for you and for your kingdom is that I'm going to divide this kingdom into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. All right, so the kingdom of God gets broken apart into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called Samaria, because that's where their capital was. The southern kingdom, sometimes called Judah, is centered around Jerusalem. All right, so you have this divided kingdom. The northern kingdoms, uh, Samaria, quickly started to stray even further away from God. They built their own temple, which was a big no-no. They started to become like the nations around them. They broke covenant with God. And eventually, you know, God sent prophets, warned them, hey, turn back to the Lord or those, those covenant curses are going to come. I'm going to lift my protection and uh, a country is going to come against you and take you into exile. He warned them. He warned them. He warned them. They didn't repent. And then God sent. All right, here we go. Another opportunity. I'm going to make it even bigger this time. $10. Oh, I know. I'm glad I, I, yeah, anyway. So um, what country did God send against northern Israel to bring them into exile? This is for the kids. Who did God send? I know it's a $10 question, man. I'm not going to make it that easy. I got by lunch. Max. Oh, so close. You're a little bit early. Aria. No. A little bit further away. Sorry, Preston, you're too old for this one. Last chance. All right. Um, go ahead. Leave up. Matthew. Uh, what is it? No, say it, the fir- say it one more time. Assyria, you got it right, dude. Did your mom tell you? Is she there? All right, come get your prize. All right. A little nepotism going on there, right? All right, good job. All right, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of the Assyrians, was sent by God as punishment against the northern kingdom. And he brought them, the way the Assyrians did that is they deported the Israelites, particularly the leaders and so forth, into other countries, into other lands that the Assyrians controlled. They were kind of a superpower in that area at the time. All right, and then they would take other people from those other foreign lands and their you know, religious practices and so forth, and they'd bring them into northern, the northern kingdom, into Samaria. All right, so these transplants, you know, they, they intermarried with some of the remaining Israelites. They brought and mixed their own religious practices, and they became known as the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, they developed their own distorted false, uh, false version of Judaism. They had their own version of the Bible. They built their own temple. Again, a no-no. This was later destroyed by the Jews about 100 years before Jesus came. There was bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. The Samaritans, that obviously, and they looked down on the Jews. So you got bad blood. You got this ethnic hatred. You got this religious tension. Um, Jews would not even share eating and drinking vessels with them because they didn't want to become unclean. All right, so that's what we're dealing with. And most Jews would bypass Samaria for this reason. What does Jesus, King of the Jews, God in the flesh, do? He goes into Samaria. And he doesn't just go into Samaria. He sits down. 
and asks this woman for a drink. This is God coming in. He engages her. Jesus steps through the barriers. He doesn't let old divisions, old prejudices, any of that old worldly human stuff get in the way of coming close to you and me. So he comes close, asks her for a drink of water. She says in response, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? All right? So she's operating in these externals, these old divisions. Now the title of the message is Water for the Outsider. Water for the Outsider. Who's the outsider in this scenario? Okay, the Samaritan woman is an outsider in what way? So Jesus is the insider. He's the king. He's bringing the kingdom of God. She's outside of the kingdom of God. Wrong religion. Uh, We'll see some other obstacles in a minute. All right. But also Jesus is the outsider sitting there, right? He's the Jew in Samaria. Doesn't stop him. Okay, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus shifts her attention from those old divisions, those externals, to help her get her eyes on thinking about who is this man sitting next to me and what can he offer me? Maybe you don't feel like you fit in here. Maybe church, you've had some bad experiences at church. So I encourage you to do what Jesus tells the Samaritan woman to do. Get your eyes off that. Get your eyes off your own self-consciousness. Get your eyes on Jesus and ask yourself, who is this? And what might he have to offer me? The woman said to him, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? All right, he's trying to bring her up here. She's still kind of dealing down here, and she's a little skeptical. Like, living water... Uh, you don't even have anything to get this water with. But she stays engaged, all right? Um, She asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? So she counts Jacob, Israel, as her own father. He gave us, the Samaritans, you just don't say this to a Jewish person, This, this is... He gave us, the Samaritans, the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Remember, Jacob's a big deal. That's a big name player in the history of Israel, and the Samaritans attached themselves to that. Who do you think you are, in other words? Like, Jacob has this well. You don't even have anything to get water from this well from Jacob. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again and again. 
and again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. Never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him, in this person, whoever receives it, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus gets her attention again on the living water that he has come to offer her and to offer all people. Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm greater than Jacob. Yeah, I'm greater than what this well can provide. I'm the one who has come to give you living water promised by God through the prophets of Israel. First century Jew, you hear this term living water and it's, it's setting off bells from the Old Testament, from the, from the prophets. One of these prophetic statements about living water comes from Zechariah. Zechariah 13.1, speaking of water throughout his prophecy, he says, on that day, on the day of the Messiah, the day that God comes in to establish his kingdom on earth, when that happens, a fountain will be opened up to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them, a fountain that will cleanse his people from sin and impurity. The living water that Jesus has come to bring and is offering the Samaritan woman and is offering you today is the water that cleanses you of your sins. Then God gave to Ezekiel a symbolic vision about the time when Jesus would come. And water, living water, would flow from the temple. And people thought temple, okay, visible temple in Israel, in Jerusalem. But Jesus was talking about himself. This is the vision. I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. It became a river, a river of living water that no one could cross. It's, it's a big river of living water. And wherever the river flows, everything will live. Dead things come to life. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. The living water is life-giving. It's healing. And it's food. It's spiritual food. Isaiah and other prophets are given a picture of this living water, speaking of the time when Jesus would come. Listen to what he says. And he's speaking this to you and me. He says, Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, eat. You don't need money. This is a gift. You can't buy it. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Stop trying to quench your spiritual thirst by other things. When you're tired and weary of that, come to the fountain. Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, Jesus says. Listen that you may live. The living water, it cleanses you of your sins. The living water brings life where there's death. The living water heals. The living water is real spiritual food and drink that your soul thirsts for. Let's fill it in. Here's the, here's the summary. God's living water cleanses you, quenches the thirst of your soul, heals and gives life. What's another name for this living water? It's a visual. For what? Wells up in you. 
gives you life, heals. The Holy Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's imagery for the Holy Spirit, God's personal, powerful presence. That was the marker for the age to come that Jesus would bring the Messiah and that he has brought. The Holy Spirit would be poured out. The cleansing fountain would well up inside you, spring up for eternal life. Not just a, it, it's a continuous non-stop source of life. It's God himself in you. Are you thirsty for it? Do you want that? Are you hungry? And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is the biggest challenge of living in the place that we do. There are other people around the world that are hungry and thirsty for this water. We get tripped up by our materialism, by our things, by our stuff. And we may have a low-level hunger that we keep trying to fill up with things around us, amusements, whatever that thing is you get to get your, your life fixed. And God says, when you're weary of that, when, you're, when you realize that's not satisfying, come to me. Come to me. I will give you living water. I will give you the thing that you are made to run on, to live on. Come to me. Do you want it? Do you want it? Let's see what the woman, how she responds to this. Verse 15, the woman said, Sir, give me this water. Yes, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. She wants the water. She's listening. She's receptive. Yes, give us that gift. You have to ask for it. Not just once, but when you're thirsty, you're weary, you're wrung out. When life is on you, call out. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill me again. Fill me with your life. I don't want to turn to my old wells, those old, empty, not life-giving wells. I want to turn to you. Give me that gift, Lord. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now she by somebody more than just some guy. This is the one who knows her completely, who knows her background, who knows her history, who knows her situation right then and there. Five husbands. She's probably a woman with some history of sexual morality. Uh, it's not likely she has five husbands who came and died and so forth. One emotional upheaval after another. We don't know the details of her life, but it's, it's pretty messy. This is probably why she was alone there at the well in the middle of the day. Most women would go and gather the water at the beginning of the day. So she's an outsider, even within her own people, because of her sin. That's another thing that separates us from God, puts us outside his kingdom. But Jesus doesn't do this to condemn her. 
to, to bring up shame. Jesus puts his finger on this because this is something she's going to need to turn away from if she wants this living water to flow. If you want his living water to flow in you, his Holy Spirit to fill you, this, his Holy Spirit to work through you, to bear fruit that brings life, that brings healing to yourself and to others. If you want that river to flow in you more, number one, we've got to repent. Sin gets in the way. Sin blocks the flow. And so right at the start, Jesus puts his finger on this. We've got to get this out of the way. Repentance means I would rather have your living water, God, than this sin, than this old thing that I've been turning to to get life from. If you want God's living water, this is the next fill in. If you want it to flow in your life, repent. Turn away from it. When it crops up again, when you've stumbled back into it, turn away from it. Keep putting it down. Don't try to manage it and try to keep your life together. I got God here. I got my sin here. That's not going to work. You're going to get weary of that. If you're at that point today, you'll want more of God. Turn away from the sin. Get it out. Cut it out. Don't manage it anymore. Kill it. Put it down. Do what you need to do to get out of that if you want more of his living water. I want both sometimes. And Jesus say, no, choose. Choose. What do you want? More of me? If you do, put that stuff away. Let's see what the woman says. She, she said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Wow, you've got insider information, uh, Jesus. What Jesus said of her was true. And then watch what she does, which is something that we often do. Jesus puts his finger on some sin that he's calling us to step away from, to give us more life. And we change the topic. Listen to her. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain over here. But you say that Jerusalem down there is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus tries to get her back on track. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. All right, those old geographic boundaries are being torn down as well. You will worship, you worship, she's talking to, he's talking to her again, you worship what you do not know. Okay, that Samaritan false system of religion was false. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is for the Jews. That's the plan of God. That's the way he's working it. So now Jesus is correcting her theology. He says, but the hour is coming, and listen, and is now here. Now that Jesus is here, the hour has come when true worshipers... Not external religious people, but true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, filled with the Spirit, and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's starting to click with her. The, verse 25, 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. She's starting to hear things about the Messiah. I know that Messiah is coming who is also called the Christ. That's the Greek form of the verb, of the word. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Then verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Bro, she is sitting next to the long-awaited Messiah. Right there at the well, middle of the day, no one else around in Samaria. That's the God who comes after you. That's the God who knows you, who sees you, and has come after you, and is coming after you. To give you life, to give you living water, to giving, to giving you what you were made to live on and what you've been seeking every other place. Come to him. Come to him. The woman's so fired up about this, she realizes it's, it just clicked for her. And so she, verse 28, goes. The woman left her water jar. <laughs> she bolts. She left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I think it's him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, believed in Jesus, turned to him because of the woman's testimony. And they asked him to stay with them. And he, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, stayed in Samaria two days. And many more believed because of his word. Many more took hold of that living water. And this is the crazy thing that God does now. God works through outsiders to bring people inside his kingdom. God is working through outsiders to bring others into his kingdom. Think about how you got here. I remember before I was a Christian, the Christians seemed like outsiders. They seemed like out of mainstream, and they were. I kind of thought they were odd and strange. And, and then I came up close to some Christians, and I, I liked them. And there was something there in them. And these outsiders helped me come inside his kingdom. God wants to do that through you. First, you've got to take hold of that living water, the Spirit of God. When he's in you, he wants to reach others through you. But you're ineffective when you're in your sin. So if you want to be effective for God, if you want to see him move and flow in your own life, in your family's life, those lives around you, turn away from that sin. Let him flow. And then he will bring healing to others. He'll bring his word of life to others through you. He'll do cool things through you. It'll surprise you. It won't be you. It'll be the Spirit of God in you. If you want that, why don't you stand? If you don't want that, but you're here, why don't you stand also? <laughs> you might change your mind. We're going to pray, and then we're going to take communion as just a way to, to take hold of this a little bit more concretely. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for, for life. Thank you for the gift of life, God. Thank you, Jesus, for making that possible. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would show us that 
place in our life where we are still keeping you out. A place of sin that we're, we're looking for life, but it's a place that just keeps bringing death. Lord, thank you for shining the light on that, Lord God. Help us look at it. Help us own it. Help us acknowledge it and give it to you and say, no more. I don't want this anymore. Help us repent, Lord God. Strengthen us. Sometimes we just don't have the strength to turn away from that. It just feels so entrenched. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would free us this morning from those things that bind us, that hold us back, Lord God. Help us kill those things. Turn away from those things that hinder you from flowing in our lives more. Holy Spirit, come fill up well up within us, Lord God. Bring your healing, Lord God. Bring new life. Bring revelation. Come, Holy Spirit, flow in us. This is all possible because, Jesus, of what you did for us. So we want to thank you, Lord. We thank you. We want to thank you and own this again, receive this again by taking communion. So if you want to join us, and if you don't have a cup, just raise your hand. We'll bring that around to you. And Jesus, before he went to the cross to provide that cleansing of sins that you and I needed, he was with his disciples, those who had attached themselves to him. And on that night, while they were eating, he started off and he took bread. He gave thanks for it. He broke it. And he gave it to them. He said to them, take and eat. This is, this is my body. It's a picture of his body that he gave for you, for your sins, to cleanse you. If you want to receive that forgiveness, take the bread. And after they received that, he took the cup at the table. He gave thanks for it. And he'd offered it to all of them. And he said, take all of you and drink from this. This symbolizes the blood of my covenant, my strong, unbreakable commitment to you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's receive that now. We thank you, Jesus, for that great loving sacrifice. We did not deserve it. We were in our sins, but you came into our world to offer yourselves as that sacrifice for our sins, that once for all time sacrifice. We thank you, Jesus, for it. We receive it. We need it. 
And that sacrifice set you right with God, brought you into His kingdom. You're in. And Holy Spirit, we want more of your, more of your life to flow in us, Lord. So help us to stay out of sin this week. Help us to make the good choice and to turn to you quickly for that life that you offer. We need it, Lord. We get thirsty. Flow in us, Holy Spirit. Flow in us now, tonight, this week, Lord God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.